Hi, this is Rachel Hine and Heather Levitis, Duke Plastic Surgery Residents on Resident Review, a plastic surgery lecture series. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in the respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Much of this lecture is going to be focused on embryology of the head and neck region, although anatomical considerations related to cleft lip, palate, and the cranial vault will be left until those respective lectures. This lecture is more of a potpourri, if you will, of anatomy topics. Not the most interesting cast, but we'll do our best to spruce it up as we're discussing a smatter of high-yield topics on the in-service. Let's get started. First, a discussion of branchial, also known as pharyngeal, synonymous, arch structures. So let's start first with neural crest cells. Um, they're a set of ectodermal multipotent cells that migrate into the region of the head and neck and induce the differentiation of the tissue they invade. Pharyngeal arches, these originate from these neural crest cells, surround pharyngeal endoderm and mesoderm. Each arch is separated by pharyngeal grooves externally and pharyngeal pouches internally. Now I'll try to give you a discussion of how to remember each of the commonly tested branchial arch structures, starting with the first arch. Think first arch, massive list of M's. So going down from M's, we'll start with our nerve, maxillary and mandibular nerves. We have our maxillary artery. We have Meckel's cartilage. This gives rise to the mandible plus the sphenomandibular ligament, the malleus, and the incus. For our muscles, we think MAT times two. So that's going to be our acronym. The muscles of mastication, the mylohyoid, anterior belly of digastric, the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, the tensor valley palatini, and the tensor tympani. All right, so first pharyngeal arches or branchial arches are the M's. The second arch, you want to think second S or S's. So for the nerve, you have the seventh with an S, uh, cranial nerve or the facial nerve. The artery is the stapedial artery and the hyoid artery. Unfortunately, that's not an S. Um, but then for the cartilage, you have uh, stapes, styloid, stylohyoid ligament, and the lesser horn of the hyoid. And then finally, muscles that are associated with the second branchial arch are the muscles of facial expression. So for the S component, you can think smiling, um, the stapedius muscle, the stylohyoid muscle, and the posterior belly of digastric. That doesn't really work, but posterior with multiple S's, and then it fits. So for the first arch, we have our cranial nerve 5, and then our second arch, we have cranial nerve 7. And then moving on to the third arch, the third branchial arch, we think glossopharyngeal nerve, which is nerve number 9. Um, the glossopharyngeal nerve is the taste sensation for the posterior one-third of the tongue. We have the greater horn of the hyoid, so not the lesser, it's the greater G. And then we have our stylopharyngeus muscle as well. All right, and then moving on for the fourth arch, the things you want to think in your head to remember the fourth arch, arch structures are swallowing and then anything that's not the sixth arch, which we'll talk about next. So it's sort of a catch-all. So the nerve is the superior laryngeal nerve, which is a branch of the vagus nerve. Um, the cartilage becomes the thyroid cartilage. And then for muscles, um, you have the pharyngeal constrictors, levator villi palatini, and the cricothyroid. So you've got swallowing and then the thyroid cartilage and the cricothyroid muscle. So then for the sixth arch, you want to think speaking um, or laryngeal. 
So for the nerve, you have the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which is also a branch of the vagus nerve. The cartilage becomes all of the laryngeal cartilages except for the thyroid cartilage, which was the fourth arch. And then the muscles of the sixth arch are all intrinsic laryngeal muscles except cricothyroid, which is the fourth arch, um, which we talked about before. Next, we'll talk about the pharyngeal grooves. We just talked about the pharyngeal or branchial arches. Groove number one becomes the external auditory canal. Grooves two through four create the cervical sinus, and so failure to obliterate results in pharyngeal cleft cysts, which are sealed within the neck, sinuses, or an end in a blind sac, and fistulas, which connect with the pharynx. These anomalies are often detected in the second decade of life, and they're palpable on the, at the anterior border of the sternocleidomastoid. Anomalies from groove two are most common, run between the internal and external carotid arteries towards the tonsillar fossa. For our pharyngeal pouches, we have five of them. Um, the first one is uh, internal auditory canal, and that correlates with groove one, which becomes an external auditory canal. Pouch two is our palatine tonsil, and pouch three is our inferior parathyroid and thymus. Pouch four becomes our superior parathyroid as it migrates above pouch three, and then pouch five is our thyroid C-cells. Um, the unbelievable part of all of this to me is I thought in med school I would literally never have to learn any of this ever again after step one. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are. Here we are. Every Plas- year. Plastic surgery residents almost approaching chief year, and we still have to memorize this stuff every single year for the exam. <laughs> I have to be honest, I have no good way of memorizing this. Yeah, that whole S thing and the M thing was not the best, but it's all, it's all we've got, everyone, so we apologize. Just know that you're, you're not alone. <laughs> all right, so next we're going to talk about formation of the face. Um, the face develops from five different prominences, um, one frontonasal prominence in the midline, two maxillary prominences, and two mandibular prominences. The frontonasal prominence is pulled ventrally and caudally, and it forms the forehead, the nasal dorsum, and the medial and lateral nasal prominences. Also part of the frontal nasal prominence is the, are the nasal placodes, and these develop into the nasal pits, which eventually form the nares. Um, additionally, we have the medial nasal prominence, which forms the primary palate, the mid-maxilla, the mid-lip, the philtrum, the central nose, and the septum. And then finally, the lateral nasal prominence uh, forms from the uh, forms the nasal ala. Excuse me. So then, moving on, the two maxillary prominences these migrate medially to form the secondary palate, the lateral maxilla, and the lateral lip. Junction with the lateral nasal prominences forms the nasal lacrimal groove and the nasal lacrimal duct system. Failure of fusion with the lateral nasal prominences results in oblique facial cleft, Tessier cleft number three. The mandibular prominences form the mandible, obviously, and the lower lip and lower face. And then finally, the thyroid. Um, this is from endodermal proliferation of the frame and cecum of the tongue. The thyroid descends with a trailing thyroid diverticulum to its final uh, position distal to the cricoid cartilage. Um, this is relevant because thyroglossal uh, duct cysts can form any- anywhere along this path. And these, um, as we're tested on, are the painless midline neck masses. And Heather, 
This is kind of off the cuff, but do you, I think they had a question this year on resection of a thyroglossal duct cyst. Yep. And the things that you have to remove as a part of that. Oh, gosh, I remember that question. And the answer was you remove the cyst as well as a portion of the hyoid bone. That's right. Wow. So that's a good little tidbit when you're uh, taking these out is those require uh, not only removal of the sinus itself, but also a portion of the hyoid bone. Yeah. All right. So dry but high yield stuff, like we said. And then finally, um, lingual thyroids form from failure of descent of the thyroid. Really, that's what that is. All right, so that's some of the head and neck anatomy that we're going to start with. And the next up, we've got a question. So this is a question from the 2017 exam. A six-year-old boy is brought to the office because of a draining sinus in the midline of the neck. His mother reports that the drainage developed after he had an upper respiratory infection a few weeks ago. Physical examination shows a palpable mass in the mid-third of the neck that moves upward when the patient protrudes his tongue. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? So there's a few things in this question stem that you want to look at before you answer. The first one is he's got a draining sinus in the midline of his neck. So we know that thyroglossal duct cysts form in the midline of the neck. It's also painless and moves upward when he protrudes his tongue, which is also very key when you're diagnosing thyroglossal duct cysts. If they have a uh, failure of the foramen cecum to obliterate, then that will be connected to that cyst and it will move upwards as the patient swallows or protrudes his tongue. I'm sorry. So we gave the answer away, but the answer is thyroglossal duct cyst. And just to kind of review a little bit of the anatomy for the, remember, for the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, it's from the first pharyngeal arch, and it's innervated by the lingual nerve, which is part of cranial nerve three. And then for the, I'm sorry, cranial nerve five, the third portion. And then for the posterior third of the tongue, you have the third and fourth arches, and that's innervated by the glossopharyngeal nerve, which is taste, and also the vagus nerve. Our next question is from the 2012 um, in-service examination. We'll go through that quickly. This is a 50-year-old man undergoes a wide local excision and bilateral selective cervical lymphadenectomy because of a six-month history of invasive squamous cell carcinoma of the interior floor of the mouth. Free tissue transfer using an anterior lateral thigh free flap, including harvest of the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve, reconstructs the ventral glossectomy and floor of mouth defect. Which of the following is the most likely recipient nerve for functional sensory recovery of the free flap in this patient? The answer to this question is lingual nerve. And we just went over that. So if you're taking the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve from the ALT flap, which can provide a sensate flap for that, um, you want to give sensation to the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. So if we remember, remember, that's from pharyngeal arch one, which is cranial nerve five. Um, the posterior third of the tongue is the third and fourth, and that's cranial nerve nine and 10. So if we look at all these, we have nerve seven, we have a great auricular nerve, we have nerve 12, the hypoglossal nerve was an option, the inferior alveolar nerve was an option, and then finally we have lingual, lingual nerve. So of all, out of all of these options, the lingual nerve is the only one that gives any kind of sensation to the tongue. All right, and now um, Rachel's going to give us a little overview of the anatomy of the external ear. So the external ear, it forms at the junction of the pharyngeal arch 1 and 2. Arch 1 has three anterior hillocks, and arch 2 also has three posterior hillocks. And the anterior hillocks include the tragus, the root of the helix, and the superior helix. And so kind of the upper medial portion of the ear. And then the arch 2 is the three posterior, so the antitragus, antihelix, and the lobule. 
you know, it's at some point we have to think about passing the torch along to some of our junior <laughs> colleagues. Um, we have Dr. Rosie Tillis with us today, and her first uh, foray into the Resident Review podcast is going to be a little overview of some um, really exciting den- dental anatomy. <laughs> As the junior on service right now, I get to play the role of dentist. So. A little review of dentition. Um, Kids start out with their pediatric primary deciduous deciduous baby teeth, um, 20 teeth. You start with four incisors, two canines, and four molars per arch. There are no premolars in pediatric dentition. Pediatric dentition is referenced by letter beginning with the upper right second molar to the upper left second molar, A through J. And then you jump down to the lower left second molar and swing around to the lower right second molar. Um, A person is reported to have mixed dentition when they are in the period when they have eruption of the first adult tooth, commonly the mandibular first molar, Mm -hmm. and then some baby teeth as well. Mm -hmm. Adults have 32 teeth, four incisors, two canines, four premolars, six molars, and that one is referenced by the numbers, beginning with the upper right third molar. Um, The eruption sequence usually starts with first molars at around six to seven years, your incisors are at around six to nine years. Canines come in at nine to 12. First premolars come in at 10 to 11 years. Your second premolars come in at 11 to two years. Your second molars come in at 11 to 13 years. And your third molars come in at 17 to 21 years old. Yep. So, Rosie, <laughs> we have a baby and they just erupted their first adult tooth. What's the most common adult tooth? Well, it looks like in order of the most common teeth to erupt, uh, the first molar... Mandibular or maxillary? The mandibular first molar is usually the first one to come up. Oh, man, 99%. 99%. (laughs) Do what I can. Awesome. That's great. So that's frequently asked. The first adult tooth is going to be on the mandibular side rather than the maxillary side. It's going to be your first molars. The last ones to come in are your third molars or your wisdom teeth. Um, and then there's ones in between that you'll kind of have to know as we go along. Thank you, Rosie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next. Um, so this is a question from the 2016 exam. Which of the following tooth types is most commonly the last one to erupt when the primary teeth are replaced by permanent teeth? So for our options, we have maxillary canine, maxillary central incisor, maxillary first molar, maxillary first premolar, or maxillary lateral incisor? Well, it would have to be the maxillary canine. Got it. Because if we, if like we talked about, or like Rosie taught us, the third molars come in last, but they're not listed there. And so the ones that come before that are going to be your second molars, second premolars, and, uh, and then finally your canines. And that's the, that's the one that is, out of all those, the last to erupt. So knowing the sequence is important as well. All right. We were going to have Rosie continue on with some more anatomic discussion, but I think I'll relieve her from the next couple couple topics because they're so dry. All right. So um, stages of tooth development. The first stage is initiation or prolif- uh, proliferation. Um, then you have the bud stage, which is the appearance of to- the tooth bud without a clear arrangement of cells. Next is the cap stage, which is the first sign of arrangement of these cells. And next is the bell stage, which is known for morphodifferentiation. Failure of this leads to anomaly of the enamel, dentin, and cementin composition. And then finally, you have the advanced bell stage. 
And that's sort of where my knowledge of tooth development ends. <laughs> In terms of anatomy, there are three components. You have the root of the tooth, which is the part in the bone, the neck, and then the crown, which is the part covered by enamel. From external to internal, you have the gingiva, the bone with nerve and blood vessels. Um, then you have cement, which covers tooth root only. And then you have the dentin, which is the yellow layer, uh, the pulp cavity, and then the root canal. So next we'll proceed with a question. This is from a 2017 exam. A five-year-old child is brought to the office for evaluation of several supernumerary teeth. Which of the following is most characteristic regarding this anomaly? A is more common in the primary dentition than secondary dentition. B is more frequent in the maxilla than the mandible. C is more prevalent in females than in males. D, this occurs most often from disruption during the morphodifferentiation stage of tooth development. And E is that this is typically associated with ectodermal dysplasia. So which of these answers is most common in people with supernumerary teeth? Talking about hyperdontia, yeah. which is the anomaly in the number of teeth. Heather, where does this most commonly occur if you have hyperdontia or supernumerary teeth? So supernumerary teeth, I believe, are more common in the maxilla of about 90%. So that will occur during the initiation or proliferation stage. It's more common in males rather than females, and it is five times more common in permanent dentition than in primary dentition. And finally, ectodermal dysplasia is associated with hypodontia. So when we look at our answers here, uh, more common, common in primary dentition than secondary dentition is going to be incorrect. It is more frequent in the maxilla, so that is the right answer. It's more prevalent in males, not females. Hypodontia, not hyperdontia, is associated with ectodermal dysplasia. Rosie, do you want to talk about dental cysts? Sure. There are multiple kinds of dental cysts. Um, first of all, it's periapical dental cysts, which is the most common. It develops from necrotic pulp after tooth infection and is also associated with mandible fractures. It is also known as a radicular cyst. These are periapical cysts. Next kind is dentigerous cysts. This develops in the follicle from an unruptured tooth, and it is lined with non-keratinizing epithelial cells. This is the second most common type of cyst. A uh, third type is odontogenic or primordial cysts. This develops inside of a tooth and is lined with epithelium. Uh, the next kind is gingival cysts. These are superficial cysts in the gingiva, and it contains keratin. The last kind of dental cyst, a residual cyst, and this is a retained periapical cyst after the tooth has been removed. So how could we tell a difference between, if we're looking at a picture, a periapical, which is very common, versus a dentigerous cyst? Like we know, like you said, the dentigerous cysts will develop in a follicle of an uninterrupted tooth. Oh, so, so on the x-ray, you'll see a tooth that has not erupted, and it will be a cyst around that. Um, for periapical, it will be at the apices of the tooth itself, which is going to look a little different from an uninterrupted tooth, and that's kind of how you can tell the difference, but I still always get those confused. Periapical cysts, I just think of people with bad teeth, get them from tooth infections, and it just gets necrotic and kind of gross. So that would be like a bubble at the bottom of the tooth, whereas a dentigerous cyst would be like a tooth inside of a bubble. Yes. Exactly. And now, do you want to talk about some benign dental tumors? Yeah, I do, actually. So... An amyloblastoma is a slow-growing tumor. It occurs in your 40s or 50s from odontogenic epithelium. So on x-rays, you'd see a radiolucent multicystic unilocular lesion. 
and these are treated by a segmental mandibulectomy and reconstruction. There are also keratocystic odontogenic tumors. These are aggressively local. <laughs> so aggressive and so local. So local. They're Sounds all about like it. some guys I know. <laughs> yeah, anyway. So. Hmm. Pull it together. <laughs> the next type of tumor are keratocystic odontogenic tumors which are aggressive locally, they occur late in life, and they're also from odontogenic epithelium. The treatment for these are enucleation with chemoablation with carnoy solution. Use it. I use that all the time. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> the last type of benign dental tumors are neurofibromas. These are expansile lesions of the inferior alveolar nerve canal. So we have awesome. a few highlights from this, and I think they, they're always asked. We talked about when, they, when you see a cyst and you're able to identify it, whether it's periapical or dentigerous, or you're looking at something that looks like an amelioblastoma, they'll often ask um, what kind of epithelium it is. So just remember for amelioblastoma, it's going to be your uh, odontogenic epithelium. Mm-hmm. For your dentigerous, it's going to be the non-keratinizing like we talked about. For the neurofibromas, this is also frequently tested. These will be the expansile lesions in the area of the inferior alveolar nerve canal, and those are ways that you can tell the difference of those. Does anyone remember which of the benign dental tumors are associated with Gorlin syndrome? I do, so confidently. (laughs) (laughs) It's the keratocystic odontogenic tumor. Is it keratocystic or keratocystic? Whatever you tomato, want. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> yeah, tomato. But seventy-five percent of patients with Gorlin syndrome has this finding. Good. Look, we're tying we're tying things in. And what kind of skin cancer do people with Gorlin syndrome get? I think it's a basal cell carcinoma. Yeah, yep, exactly. Basal cells. Um, so moving on from teeth, we're gonna talk about the carotid artery anatomy, and we're gonna go with the less color- colorful version of the external carotid artery. An a- an acronym. Acronym. Ac- <laughs> <laughs> Acronym. Sorry. Anyway, some attendings like freaking out potential medical students. So that stands for S, superior thyroid, A, ascending pharyngeal, L, lingual, F, facial, O, occipital, P, posterior auricular, M, maxillary, and S, superficial temporal. Some attendings like freaking out potential medical students. That's the one we're going with. Which of the following is the most common origin of the superior thyroid artery? So let me think about this. Some attendings like freaking out potential medical students. So we have the bifurcation, the common carotid, external carotid, and internal carotid. I feel like we just talked about that acronym that had the superior thyroid artery coming off the external carotid artery. So that's my answer. Next, we're going to talk about neck trauma. So we're kind of jumping all over the place. Rachel's going to take us through the zones of injury. So we have three zones of injury um, for penetrating neck trauma. Sometimes we'll get called in for these. The zone one is going to be your inferior most zone, and that is clavicle to cricoid cartilage. You have your great vessels there, your subclavian vessels, brachiocephalic veins, common carotid arteries, aortic arch and jugular veins. You also have your trachea, esophagus, lung apices, cervical spine, spinal cord, and cervical nerve roots. For your second, it is the cricoid cartilage to the angle of the mandible. And that is going to be your carotid and vertebral arteries, jugular veins, as well as your pharynx, larynx, trachea, esophagus, cervical spine, and spinal cord. Some high, high uh, 
High stakes real estate? High stakes real estate, exactly. Yeah. And then the zone three is the superior most, and that's going to be a little posterior as well. That's the angle of the mandible to the base of the skull. And these are your salivary and parotid glands, as well as your esophagus, trachea, vertebral bodies, carotid arteries, jugular veins, and spinal cord. So moving on to relevant in-service question. This is from 2016. A 17-year-old boy is brought to the emergency department because of profuse bleeding from a stab wound to the neck above the angle of the mandible anterior to the sternocleidomastoid muscle. After airway stabilization is established, vascular repair of a laceration of the jugular vein is performed. Where is the injury located? So if we remember, zone one is clavicle to cricoid, zone two is cricoid to angle, and zone three is angle to base of skull. So this is anterior to the sternocleidomastoid and uh, above the angle of the mandible. So I'm going to go with zone three, which is going to be angle of mandible to base of skull. Leave it to Rachel to answer her own question. (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) That's okay. So next we're going to go through some of the skull foramens. These are uh, the exits of the cranial nerves. Facial nerve comes out the stylomastoid foramen. The internal carotid artery comes out the foramen lacerum. The um, maxillary division of cranial nerve 5 comes out the foramen rotundum. The mandibular division of cranial nerve 5 comes out the foramen ovale. And then cranial nerves 3 four, and six come out the superior orbital fissure, and um, compression or injury to these nerves leads to superior orbital fissure syndrome. Related concept to this is the orbital apex syndrome, which is basically superior orbital fissure syndrome plus cranial nerve two or optic nerve involvement, and that's sometimes tested. Moving on, the middle meningeal artery and vein come out the foramen spinosum, and the glossopharyngeal vagus, and spinal accessory nerves come out the jugular foramen. Moving on um, to sinus drainage into the nose. I know we're kind of jumping all over the place here, but we all got to get all this head and neck anatomy covered somehow. Um, The superior meatus uh, drains the sphenoid sinus and the posterior ethmoid air cells. The middle meatus drains the maxillary sinus. And the inferior meatus drains the nasolacrimal duct, which is important for placement of Crawford tubes, especially in uh, facial trauma. We have some more kind of random relevant nerve anatomy that we get tested on in, uh, in addition to its implications for anomalous innervation. Arnold's nerve, which is the vagus nerve, branch of the vagus nerve. Provides sensation to the palate and external auditory meatus. This is relevant when you're performing a, an ear block. The glossopharyngeal nerve provides parasympathetic innervation to the parotid gland. And then related is Frey's syndrome, which is gustatory sweating, commonly after, not commonly, but happens after a parotidectomy. And it's really what it is, is anomalous reinnervation of the auricular temporal nerve, which normally supplies sensation to the upper helical rim. It can also occur after repair of a condyle fracture. And that's anomalous reinnervation of parasympathetic fibers to your auriculotemporal nerve, which makes you salivate. Yep. So moving on to some questions. This is from the 2015 exam. A 24-year-old man with a history of left facial trauma and condylar fracture of the mandible is evaluated because of redness and perspiration of the left cheek and ear after ingesting certain foods. Aberrant regeneration of which of the following nerves is the most likely cause of this patient's symptoms? Is it A, auricular, auriculotemporal, Facial, greater auricular, 
inferior alveolar or lingual? Well, I remember our conversation very recently about phrase syndrome. <laughs> and I'm thinking this is going to be auricular temporal nerve. So the syndrome is thought to result from damage to auricular temporal parasympathetic nerve fibers with subsequent aberrant regeneration and innervation of sympathetic fibers to the sweat glands. Finally, we're going to finish up with some more random parotid anatomy. Rachel? So these, this is parotid anatomy that's not tumors. So when we think about things that can get injured, we have our Stinson's duct. That can occur after trauma. And what you form is a sialosyl from that. Where is this located? So this is located adjacent to the maxillary second permanent molar. That's frequently tested. This can cause a salivary fistula. Um, treatment is antibiotics and anti Sialagogues. Is that how you say that? Mm-hmm. I think so. So anyway, this sort of mini podcast is going to serve as the preamble to the podcast episode that I recorded with Dr. Rachel Analik before her graduation with Dr. Yu. So stay tuned. And that's coming up next. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good evening. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to our podcast. We have today Dr. Ron Yu, who's Professor of Plastic Surgery at MD Anderson and has been there since 2001. He specializes in head and neck reconstruction, has over 100 peer-reviewed publications. He's listed as one of America's top doctors on U.S. News and World Report, and he today served as the Barwick Visiting Professor at Duke. So we're very happy to have had you here today. Thank you so much for visiting us. I'm Heather, one of the PGY4 residents. We also have one of our chief residents with us today, Dr. Rachel Analik, who recently uh, found out that she was accepted to uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering's microsurgery fellowship next year. So we're very proud of her. <laughs> we also have Dr. Phillips with us today, who just finished up his microsurgery fellowship at MD Anderson and considers Dr. Yu one of his mentors. So thank you, everyone, for being here with us today. So would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself, what sorts of surgeries you specialize in, and anything else you want to share with us? Yeah, I uh, uh, initially I didn't know anything about plastic surgery. Uh, I uh, trained in China, uh, in Beijing, in general surgery. Then I came to the United States. I restarted general surgery residency. I uh, found out that... Um, uh, I needed something more technically challenging, so that's how I got into plastic surgery, and uh, then I fell in love with microsurgery right away. And uh, then one of the uh, kind of most challenging areas of reconstruction is headache reconstruction. Uh, so um, I just loved it, and I started doing headache reconstruction uh, during my residency, and all these flaps, I guess, um, I love the flaps and the complicated reconstruction. So. When I got to MD Anderson, I just uh, you know focused on head neck reconstruction. So this is where where my passion is. So we heard a little bit about this this morning uh, at our lecture, but um, could you talk a little bit about your approach to esophageal reconstruction and what sorts of things you've learned throughout your career and sort of where you've you've taken your reconstructive approaches? Yeah, when I first started at MD Anderson. The um, most common flap uh, we uh, used for frame of reconstruction is the jejunal flap. And then we realized that you know, it's a big surgery for a lot of uh, these kind of cancer patients. They, you know, a lot of them are smokers, drinkers, they don't, they're not very healthy. So another abdominal surgery uh, is really 
uh, kind of uh, risky for them. And so then uh, during my residency, I did a lot of LT flaps. I thought that's a good flap to use. And so we started using the LT flap, and uh, so you don't have to open the abdomen, so a lot easier for the patient, and uh, you don't have to coordinate with another, uh, let's say, general surgery uh, to hook up the bowel and close the abdomen for us. So it, it makes a lot easier for, for patients and for surgeons uh, as well. And they recover faster, so that's uh, <clears throat> then we started using the uh, LT flap and the radial thigh flap. Then we also realized that uh, for for these patients with a total laryngectomy, they don't have a voice box, and how they how are they going to talk? Right? So um, we have to puncture a hole between the esophagus and the uh, trachea to uh, make a fistula for them to talk. And uh, with the small bowel for the reconstruction, the small bowel is too soft and it doesn't vibrate well, so the speech is terrible. And with a skin flap, you know, skin vibrates like a drum, so their voice is much better. So uh, that's the kind of another advantage of the uh, skin flap. Uh, so that's our approach now for uh, these pharyngoesophageal reconstruction. And uh, it's been working great. So we heard a little bit about this, but can you talk to us about the advantages and the disadvantages of using a free jejunum versus an ALT? Yeah, no, so I can touch a little bit already. No. Uh, yeah, the uh, jejunum and ALT, uh, the jejunum flap requires a uh, laparotomy and abdominal surgery, bowel surgery, uh, so there tends to be uh, a lot more surgery. Uh, many patients with high-risk patients, they cannot tolerate such a big surgery, and uh, so their recovery is longer, and they, um, with the jejunal flap, the voice uh, reproduction is not good because the jejunal, jejunum doesn't vibrate well. Uh, with the ALT flap, it's a skin flap, so it's, um, it vibrates better, so the voice is better, and also you don't have to open the abdomen, you just take a piece of skin from the thigh, it's kind of, you know, surgically it's no big deal, it's a small surgery. Uh, but the bowel has its uh, own advantage, uh, because the, uh, uh, the bowel is, you put it in the neck inside for esophageal reconstruction, uh, that's like, it's the it's native environment, so it heals very well, you know, it heals within a week, uh, versus you put a skin, uh, basically you soak the skin in saliva 24 hours a day, uh, it's like the skin will macerate, so they, that's why the skin flap heals uh, more slowly, so that's, that's probably how you sometimes get a delayed fistula, so that's kind of a disadvantage of the uh, skin flap, uh, but uh, just because it's easier for the patient and less surgery and speech is better, so it becomes more popular flap. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned that speech um, is better with an ALT flap, but which flap do you think is better in terms of swallowing for the patients? Yeah, swallowing, I would say it's probably about the same. Um, people think that the, with the jejunum, you know, it has peristalsis, it may help help with the swallowing if you, uh, uh, you do the uh, hook up of the bowel in the right direction, uh, but actually um, we, we see a lot these uh, during barium swallow study uh, because you put the bowel in the neck, it's not coordinated uh, peristalsis anymore. So it's not like a, when you want the foot to go down and the peristalsis helps it to go down. It's mm. not coordinated like this. Mm -hmm. So we, a lot of times we see that when the patient tries to swallow and the bowel starts to move, 
contracts, then you can see the spasm and like and just standing there for like a, many minutes. Like one case we saw for like five minutes, the patient trying to swallow and it's like a choke mm -hmm. for, for like five minutes. He can't swallow at all. Then all of a sudden it releases them, boom, you know, it goes down. Mm -hmm. So it's not coordinated uh, peristalsis. And so, but uh, uh, I think overall, uh, swallowing function is probably about the same. Hmm. When do you allow patients to eat after esophageal reconstruction? And when do you um, get that barium swallow that you mentioned? And how often are patients able to successfully eat after your reconstructions? Yeah, the, uh, uh, in patients without prior radiation therapy to the neck, and these patients can heal faster, so we wait for about two weeks after surgery. Then we give the patient a barium swallow study first, make sure there's no leak uh, inside, and also make sure that the patient can swallow without uh, uh, problems. Um, now, if the patient had radiation already in the esophagus uh, before surgery, and uh, then they heal really badly, and we wait for like six weeks, and uh, then give a, a barium swallow study, and, and then if they pass the swallow study, then we uh, feed them. So two weeks without radiation and six weeks uh, with previous radiation. And um, what was that question? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that answers it. I had asked how often it was successful that your patients uh, are able to. Yeah, in, overall, uh, I think about 90% of patients can uh, eat without uh, uh, tube feeding. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like overall you definitely favor the ALT flap and I can understand why. Are there any patients that you see preoperatively that you're unable to perform an ALT flap on? Uh, yeah, if they have no legs. That's part of the podcast. <laughs> I have a picture of a patient. <laughs> he put the, he put the both legs in ice up to the like a groin. Uh huh. And uh, every time I show, now that's the indication, a contraindication for ALT flap. <laughs> but but, uh, 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 but actually, there is a contraindication if you have a, a patient with obese uh, legs that are really thick then you, you can't put that much tissue in the neck. Even we can thin the flap, but if it's really thick, you just can't thin it enough uh, to especially make a tube. That's going to be very hard to do. So these patients will uh, use a forearm flap that's a lot thinner. Oh, um, thank you so much. Uh, we heard this morning um, about some pretty innovative things you're doing for tracheal reconstruction involving some pros different prosthetic materials and how there's not really anything ideal, but you've been very creative in some of the solutions you've co you'd come up with. I'd love to uh, have our listeners hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, the um, tracheal reconstruction, you know, key, to keep the lumen open, you need uh, some rigid support material uh, and then a thin skin flap for the lining. So our big problem is the supporting material. There's nothing commercially available you can just grab off the shelf. Um, so initially we used the uh, uh, permanent material called the Hemashield uh, Elder Graft. And that, that graft can uh, integrate with tissue very well, but it's rather soft. So we have to put another graft there that's permanent, uh, that's resorbable, but it's more rigid to reinforce the uh, rigidity of the uh, hemoshield 
aorta graft. So that's how we started with. Then we also tried in animal studies with a Gore-Tex graft and uh, some tissue engineered stuff. And we uh, used uh, uh, a cross-linked collagen uh, you know, tissue engineered stuff. But uh, once you cross-link, the origin becomes uh, rigid, but it's, uh, it's like a piece of cardboard. Uh, that never integrated with the tissue, so we uh, really uh, uh, didn't use it. Uh, so still, uh, uh, now people are uh, still working on tissue engineering for for these um, uh, like a porous uh, like tracheal material, and or you can print a three D you know, trachea. But again, it's the material, not not you know you can create something like look like a trachea. But if the material is not about compatible with the tissue, then or or not uh, uh, good for tissue integration, then it's not good for the reconstruction. And uh, a lot of these patients, for our uh, in our po patient population, are the cancer patients. They need radiation. So if your material uh, doesn't incorporate with the tissue very well, and after radiation, you, you know, start to cause problems, you know, infection, extrusion, and then and ultimately failure. Uh, so that's that's area we still uh, require a lot of work. Mm. So today we had the chance to visit the anatomy lab with Dr. Yu and perform several different dissections, um, but one of the most interesting things we learned today was the ulnar artery perforator flap. So can you talk to us about the differences between the uh, radial forearm flap and the use of the ulnar artery perforator flap? What do you like to use this flap for and why do you think that this flap may be better suited for certain defects as opposed to the radial forearm flap? Yeah, the radio form flap is a great flap. It's a hardy flap, uh, kind of uh, uh, very, uh, very hard to kill. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I always joke that uh, you really have to be stupid to kill radio. Form. Yeah, <laughs> Cut in, that out. In, <laughs> in your hands, maybe. <laughs> uh, uh, but it's a great flap. Uh, you know, it uh, has a, a very long, uh, good track record. Everybody uh, knows how to do it, and the donor site mobility is uh, relatively small. Uh, it, uh, but uh, it still has a couple of uh, things that uh, we wish it could be better. For example, uh, tan exposure is common, and the skin graft the area in the radioform area uh, it's uh, it's very visible. Right? So, uh, so these two things uh, we can probably improve with the ulnar artery perforator flap because when we design the ulnar artery perforator flap, uh, the distal border of the flap is five centimeters above the wrist crease. So it's not uh, as visible as the uh, radio form donor side. In addition, uh, there's uh, virtually no tendon exposure in that area if you move five centimeters uh, proximal from the wrist crease on the ulnar side. And it's also less hairy so these are kind of the advantages of the owner uh, artery perforator flap. The uh, traditionally, I think the concern of uh, harvesting the owner artery is the owner uh, hand dominance, and that's kind of tra traditional teaching. But uh, there are a lot of research going on, uh, published in the last uh, 10, 20 years, showing that uh, that's probably not true. Uh, it's uh, more like a, it's a uh, uh, equal. Dominance. There's actually no dominance. So if you uh, cut one artery, the artery will just will just compensate uh, to perfuse the hand. Uh, so 
based on these studies, uh, we feel like it's it's pretty safe. And our experience also shows that proves that uh, uh, taking out the owner really um, really does not cause any problem with the hand. Uh, so that's the uh, <clears throat> and so that's why we are using the owner artery uh, more just because of the advantages of less tendon exposure and more uh, inconspicuous uh, scar. So along those lines, would you say you do not need to perform an Allen's test prior to performing this flap? Yeah, I think that's also controversial. Uh, even in the hand surgery, uh, especially uh, some hand surgeons, uh, like uh, when uh, where I train, uh, it's a very hand surgery heavy, and these guys never believe the Allen's test. Mm -hmm. So I kind of learned that from my residency, uh, and I did some Allen's test in patients. And in in couple of patients, uh, when we had a very positive Allen's test, the like hand is white, and we prepared for a, a vein graft to the uh, radio artery, and then we once we harvest the flap, the hand is perfectly fine. So, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, but uh, uh, I think probably for the safe side, you can you can do Allen's test and pre pre prepare for. Uh, uh, vein graft, uh, just in case, uh, but I think uh, it's probably in reality probably don't need it. Mm -hmm. So during the dissection, you showed us exactly where these perforators from the ulnar artery would be found prior to actually visualizing them. So can you tell our listeners where we find the perforators? Yeah, so uh, these we kind of map the perforators uh, in our flap dissection, so we then kind of average them and group them into like three groups, uh, perforate A location, perforate B location, and perforate C location. And then we uh, realized that perforate A location is about seven centimeters proximal to the uh, pisiform, and uh, perforate B is another five centimeters uh, proximally in the arm, and perforate C is another five centimeters more proximally in the arm. So based on these like, uh, mapping, uh, we can sort of predict where the perforators will be, so that will guide you how to locate these perforators. Um, so, among other things, I've deduced that uh, Dr. Yu is good enough at what he does to work around uh, patients that are fat and patients that are hairy. But <laughs> <laughs> on, on that note... Um, and uh, that are stupid. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, we talked a little bit uh, this morning at um, our resident breakfast about the role of vasopressors and flap surgery, and I know you had some interesting insights on that topic, and it has actually, I, I believe, come up on some of our uh, previous exams as an as in-service exam question, so I'd love to hear what you have to yeah, think, think about that. Traditionally, uh, people consider vasopressors contraindicated in flaps or free flap surgery and the of course the thinking that the vessel uh, vessel pressures cause a vessel spasm and cut off the circulation to the flap and mm -hmm. um, but uh, it's you know if you look at the uh, uh, experimental uh, studies in the literature it's always controversial you know some show uh, matters some show it really doesn't matter and uh, there's really no good hard science so uh, at MD Anderson, we traditionally also uh, don't use uh, vessel presses uh, in our practice. And we have a kind of a common consensus with the anesthesiologists, and they should know that uh, they don't use vessel presses in preflap cases. And then uh, and I, I'm, I, never, I was never a true believer of that. Uh, but 
you know, because we do so many free fraps, and that's uh, that's a tradition for so many decades. I didn't want to just uh, say, okay, let's just change that. <clears throat> so when we had a very good uh, kind of head and neck anesthesiologist, I told him that uh, you know maybe we should just treat these uh, free flap cases like a normal cases. Don't don't worry about the vessel pressure issue and do whatever you need to do and just don't tell me. <laughs> so I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> then after like five, six years, we, uh, so uh, I said, uh, so how are we doing? Maybe we should look at our results, see what happened uh, with all these vessel presses. And so we, uh, we started to um, uh, review our cases. So we reviewed like 5,600 free flap cases at MD Anderson and looked at the uh, vessel pressure use intraoperatively. And uh, to our big surprise, uh, two surprises, number one is 86% of the patient used the vessel pressure in the operating room. So I gave a brain run to anesthesiologist I said, you guys have been cheating us all along. <laughs> You're not supposed to use it. <laughs> and then the second big surprise is Actually, the use of vessel pressures decreased the venous thrombosis, uh, yeah, especially for breast reconstruction. Uh, so that's that's another big surprise. But but actually, you uh, think about it, it, makes sense. You know, you raise the blood pressure, and probably uh, constricts the uh, vein. And so then we look at the pharmacology and we talk about the uh, uh, this with the, with the anesthesiologist. They say that probably the vessel pressure actually constricts the vein more than the artery. So that helps the venous return. Uh, so that's that's just one theory. Uh, uh, so yeah, it, it actually helps uh, with the uh, flap. One of our microsurgeons will allow the use of vasopressors for most of the case, but when he's actually mobilizing the vessels, he prefers that they do not use uh, vasopressors. So do you find that the timing is important, or at this point do you allow them to just proceed as they normally would? Yeah, that's a great question. We. Uh, we actually thought about this, so we divided the vessel pressure use into um, uh, like four phases. Uh, the, the first phase is during uh, anesthesia induction, and uh, then the second phase is like from uh, um, during the flap dissection, but before um, uh, ischemia. Then this third phase is like 30 minutes before ischemia, and two thirty minutes after revascularization, then the fourth phase is the rest of the surgery. So we look at the uh, vessel pressure used during these four periods of time, and uh, we actually also look at the uh, uh, vessel pressure used just before and after the uh, revascularization, and we found no differences. So uh, any time during surgery, you, know, you use vessel pressure actually does not affect the flap uh, survival. And of course, in the, in the uh, we call it the first phase of P1 and P1 to P4. So if you use a P1 during induction of the vessel, the average uh, uh, half-life for the vessel pressure is like 10-15 minutes. So by the time you do the flap, it's already gone uh, mm -hmm. from the system. Um, so Dr. Yu, uh, you had a chance to show us some pretty unbelievable uh, chimeric flap dissections um, earlier in our anatomy lab. Um, just wondering what your experience is with vein grafts and do you use them? How often do you use them? And do they lead to higher rates of thrombosis and flap failure in your in your hands, in your opinion? Yeah, in my hands, I don't use uh, vein graft uh, much. 
so if I know that uh, I'm going to need a long pedicle, uh, it's, the recipient vessel is far away. So then uh, when I design my flap, I, uh, you know, I design very carefully to create a long, very long pedicle so it can reach. So that way I can avoid a lot of uh, vein grafts. Um, so in, in my own experience, I actually I haven't really uh, reviewed it, uh, whether vein graft increases the thrombosis rate, but my feeling is that uh, if I plan well uh, to use these vein grafts, it really should not affect the um, thrombosis rate. Uh, but I think uh, one of my colleagues, uh, you know, he uses vein grafts a lot, and uh, I think he, he recently they published a paper about this, and. Uh, Actually, vein grafts showed a higher thrombosis rate and a failure rate, uh, but I think that just reflects the uh, the really difficulty of reconstruction in these patients, mm. uh, not necessarily the vein graft itself. Mm. Do you ever anticoagulate your patients after these big reconstructions? Uh, for uh, straightforward reconstruction without uh, intraoperative events, I do not use any anticoagulation, just a routine DVT prophylaxis. Uh, now, if the artery uh, clots in the operating room, and most of these are because of the disease, you know, you have disease, a radiated artery, they, uh, they just don't do well. Mm -hmm. And in that case, I give a low dose of heparin, like 400 or 500 units per hour uh, IV drip for like three days. And uh, in, uh, in the operating room, I also give, before that, I give like uh, 2,500 or 3,000 units of heparin IV bolus, then followed by uh, four, four to 500 units per hour drip, uh, just kind of take the edge off. Uh, I remember uh, during one of the SR meetings, uh, they invited a hematologist uh, talk about the anticoagulation, and uh, I still remember clearly, she, think, she thinks that actually all your patients are probably at high risk because most of a lot of these are cancer patients mm -hmm. and it's a long surgery. Mm -hmm. So these are, uh, by definition, are high risk patients. So you should give a little bit of uh, anticoagulation to take the age off, mm -hmm. uh, but not necessarily uh, fully heparinize them. So I think that the uh, low dose of heparin uh, probably in that situation may help. So this probably doesn't happen too often in your experience, but if you are for some reason unable to perform a free flap for head and neck reconstruction, what are your local options? Yeah, then um, uh, kind of these salvage uh, flaps, you know, we have free flap failures due to infection, uh, necrotizing fasciitis, or some other reason the patient really have no uh, recipient vessels, if not a rate previously radiation, surgery, neck dissection, or multiple free flaps in the past. And so in that situation, you are left with uh, uh, no options. Uh, then I think the uh, pectoralis major muscle flap, uh, uh, with skin or without skin, you can skin graft on the muscle, uh, sometimes can be a, a, a compromised option. Or the latissimus dorsi flap, uh, you know, uh, people usually don't think about bringing the Lacephalus dorsi flap all the way to the neck, and they uh, when I first used the lacephalus dorsi flap, nobody believed me that it can reach the neck actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, I took a lot of pictures, and actually one of the fellows, uh, uh, Alex um, Richard, mm -hmm. he, uh, he he uh, he heard about um, uh, I was going to do this flap. He came to the operating room just to see 
that uh, make sure it's reached. <laughs> so he took a bunch of pictures. Actually, we can pull the latissimus wrap all the way to the TMJ. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, so, but the key is to you have to uh, kind of create a uh, either divide the pack insertion in the humerus or just create some uh, shortcuts for the uh, pedicle to go through. Do you have to divide the clavicle to get it up that no, far? No, no, not the clavicle. You pass under? Um, not above the clavicle. Above, yeah, okay. Above the clavicle, just on top of the clavicle. Yeah, but I think what's limiting the arc of rotation is the uh, pec major insertion. So mm -hmm. if, if you divide this, uh, then you have a lot of room. Mm -hmm. Dr. Mm -hmm. Phillips, do you have anything you'd like to say or add? I, I saw one last year oh. with Dr. Yu, and this was a salvage, salvage, salvage. I mean, <laughs> everything was already used. There, I think they did at least five or six flaps that <clears throat> wow. one would constantly uh, just fail. Pecs were, both pec flaps were already used. And, oh, and the fibula. Yeah, yeah. It's, and uh, I think he said we're going to do a latissimus. I think everybody said the same thing. We're not going to be able to get it all the way up there. And, and he did. So it can happen. Yeah. That was a very complicated case, but not something that's uh, not routine at MD Anderson. All right. Well, if it's not routine at MD Anderson, it's pro probably not routine anywhere. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Well, um, thank you everyone so much for being here today. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, I think our listeners will very much enjoy this episode. And um, until next time, thanks. Yeah, thank you. I don't sing, uh, uh, but uh, this you know, karaoke is very popular in, in Asia, mm -hmm. uh, uh -huh. in China too. So I go to China, they always take me to a karaoke. And so when I have Chinese visitors here, I... Uh, have a party, have invite all the Chinese visitors uh -huh. home. So I, I thought I need to uh, have a karaoke machine to entertain these visitors. Uh -huh. And then they, you know, the fellows, residents, and the PAs, they all enjoy it. And this is a good way to, uh, to relax after double free flap case. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds like, isn't that stressful for you anyway? <laughs>